0: Matthew chapter 20, and I would ask that you would rest your eyes on verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know not you, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for, for, uh, as a ransom, a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you for who you are. And God, we thank you that your presence is here in this place. And God, it's our heart's desire that not to be distracted, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God has to say to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may be seated. There's a story of how Satan was traveling across the North African desert. He came upon some of his demons in training that were trying to tempt a holy man who had abandoned the metroplex to live in solitude in the North African desert. People who made such sacrifices were viewed in high esteem that they would leave the comforts that were available to them to live in the hazardous conditions in the desert. Satan stood back as he watched them in amusement for a while. As he saw his demons literally throw everything but the kitchen sink at the holy man, they tried fine women, money, fame, power, prestige, and popularity. None of those temptations made the holy man blink an eye. He stood strong. He was not going to falter from his convictions. After a while, Satan became extremely agitated with his incompetent demonic agents. Haven't I taught you anything, he asked. Step aside. Let me show you how to handle holy men. Then Satan explained, the reason you failed with this kind of Christian is that your methods were too obvious and crude. Let me show you how it's done. So he walked over to the holy man with great care, and he whispered softly in his ear, have you heard the news? Your brother has been promoted to the bishop to be bishop of Alexandria. Instantly, the holy man's face turned red. His lips dropped to the ground, and you could all but see fire coming out of his eyes. Envy and jealousy is often the most effective weapon against Christians who desire to be holy. In the old Urban Dictionary, there's a popular contemporary word that describes a hidden jealousy and envy that was in this holy man's heart. And the word is outed. Outed. Say outed. It means to reveal some previously secret part of someone's life. To be outed means that there's something that is concealed that may not even be known to you that's in your life, but obvious to others or discovered in some exchange, and that thing that was previously secret and concealed, once it is revealed, that's what it means to be outed. Now, some time ago, a leader from a church was helping me relocate to this building, and on occasion, I would get a call from this uh, leader, and he was extremely helpful, but for some reason, whenever he would get into a, a heated argument with his wife. He would but die on me. He would die on me accidentally. That's what I'm just repeating what people say to me. All right. And I could hear everything that was that they were saying to each other, and they would be yelling and cussing, and the kids would be crying in the background, and back. Uh, 10 years ago, however many years ago, if somebody called you and they didn't hang up, you couldn't hang up on them. At least I didn't know how. So I'm hearing, I'm trying to say, hello, hello. I'm trying to get his attention. I'm hearing everything that you're saying. And this ain't good, Deke. This ain't good. This ain't good. This ain't good. And then finally when uh, World War IV was over, I tried to call him back. No answer. And so this went on for weeks. And every now and then, now he's arguing with his teenager and so forth and so forth. Finally, I bumped into him. We were actually at the grocery store. I bumped into him and said, man, look, <laughs> every time you have an argument in your house, I'm hearing all of the details. I'm not interested. But I, I just wonder if you were aware that you were on blast like that. And he was so embarrassed. I've been outed, and what what normally would happen is that now the person will block you. You can't talk to them or they change churches. Once you find out something that was secret, that was in their heart, that they were really fronting and letting everybody think that they had this great, perfect family, but really they were uh, they were uh, the, the the Saturday night match at home. The home was a war zone he said to me when he became aware that I knew, he said, that's the best thing that ever happened to my marriage. He said, I had no idea that I was that out of control until someone else other than my wife and my children heard me. And he said, what God allowed you to hear and be exposed about me probably saved my marriage. And so being outed is not the worst thing because what God will often do is cause us on occasion to see ourselves in the mirror in ways that are very unpleasant but totally revealing and accurate about what has been concealed in our hearts. Somebody say, I've been outed. As we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 20, Jesus, with his all-seeing eye, gives a spiritual CAT scan to the hearts of his most trusted disciples. On the surface, you and I would be very impressed with the twelve men that Jesus chose to be personal apprentices that would ultimately become leaders of a movement that would turn the world upside down. Who wouldn't be impressed if you were a part of Jesus' hand-chosen entourage? Now, I want to do four things today as we look at this is the first thing I want to talk, I want to share clarifications that need need to to be addressed, clarifications. And I want to focus on preparation, preparation that's needed. Thirdly, we're going to look at revelation that exposes us. So clarification, preparation, revelation, and then finally, I want to share from this passage in Matthew's, Matthew's chapter 20, some applications from the example of Jesus Christ uh, for our own lives. From Matthew's chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we discover that each of the 12 original disciples were personally hand-selected by Jesus. Let me begin reading uh, those verses. And when he called the, his 12 disciples to him, say to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, in the name of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Bartholomew I'm sorry, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Labius, whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon the Cainite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. This group of undistinguished future leaders included a thief named Judas two hellraisers, Jesus called the sons of Zebedee, James and John, a knife-carrying, cussing fisherman who liked to fight named Peter, a crooked, white-collar criminal named Matthew, the Levite, who was a tax rip-off artist, and a black dude from the family of Canaan who was a descendant of Ham, one of of Noah's three sons, and doubting Thomas, who didn't believe anything unless he saw it, and a few other no distinguishable characteristic individuals that were part of Jesus's inner circle that he chose to change the world. Now, I was really fascinated as I was going through that list I didn't know that there was a black guy that was one of the 12. Simon, Simon, the Canaanite, uh, was a a member of the original 12 disciples. Let me share some things that these guys also had in common. Uh, They were hard workers, not hardly working, when Jesus called them. One of the things that we learned about the kind of leaders that Jesus chose Was he always hit moving targets, people that are already serving? And most often than not, when you end up with a position, it's usually because you're already doing what the position requires, and we're simply acknowledging what God has already affirmed. They all left everything to follow Christ, they were absolutely in, they surrendered at least their material things. They left jobs, uh, uh, they left homes, and they, Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, and immediately they packed their things up and they were behind Christ. And I think that that's one of the unique characteristics of the original 12. The Lord doesn't ask us to do that. The church would probably not be very full today if we had to leave everything immediately uh, <laughs> because the credit man cometh. Credit man, coming. They were all flawed men with many imperfections. They all believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. That was one of the requirements in order to be a disciple. Uh, In the inner circle, they had to first believe that Christ was the one who would come, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who would save and deliver, the Lamb of God who comes to who was slain before the foundations of the world, the one who would become our redeemer. They believed that, and so they followed. They were all selected after Jesus had prayed all night. In Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, the Bible says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain and he prayed, and he continued all night in prayer. And when it was day, he called the disciples to himself, and from then he chose twelve whom he also named apostles, which means that there were a lot of other, uh, within the congregation there was multiple disciples, followers of Christ, learners, pupils, but he didn't choose everybody. But before he did, Jesus, who is our mission because he's God in the flesh, he prayed all night before making the decision. And even though he prayed all night about who should be a part of the inner circle of leaders, He chose a devil named Judas. They were all shocked when they were chosen. (laughs) Humble people are shocked when they are chosen. Prideful people are shocked when they are not chosen. The story in Mark chapter 9, when you get a chance in verses 1 through 6, Jesus was on the mountain. It's called Mount Shigar. Mount Transfiguration because Christ is transformed and uh, they get to see a glimpse of the glory of Christ. And then Elijah and Moses the prophet appear in verses four through six. And here's what Peter says. He said, we ain't supposed to be here. Elijah and Moses and Jesus I get it that they get to go backstage. You, this is, you know, you had your favorite concert and you've been in the nosebleed section, and now all of a sudden you find yourself behind the curtain with with, with, with the most prestigious and popular star, you know you're not supposed to be there. You don't have that kind of pass. And so people say, I don't got this, I don't have this kind of pass. How did I get here? I'm not worthy. And so what happens is when you end up in a position in the presence of the Lord. In humility, you say, I'm not supposed to be here. And then Peter says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make an altar. I'm going I'm, I'm to worship all three. And then God said, well, uh-uh, uh-uh, let me get this clear. The reason you aren't supposed to be here, but I chose to allow you to be here, is I'm going to give you some instruction. He says, no, this is my beloved son. Hear you him. Uh, and Moses and Elijah disappear, and there's only Christ. But when you're humble, you're shocked that somebody would consider you. I was always amazed, <clears throat> Pastor Richardson, whenever there was a major preaching engagement, one time I got sick, and out of all of the ministers, I don't know how, 23, 24, I get the call. I'm not saying, well, I went to Dallas Seminary and I, I'm a major in homiletics and da da. No, I was like, why do you choose me? Because, as Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles, the greatest of sinners in his mind. Bible says in in Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, David speaking, King David, the man after God's own heart. He said, when I consider your heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which which you have ordained, which you have crafted, which you spoke into existence, there was nothing, and you said, let it be, and then it was. You spoke something into existence from nothing. When I look at what you've done, the handiwork, the marvel, the majestic work that you've done, and then he says, what is man? That you are mindful of me? And the son of man that you visit him? Whatever, who are we that God would even consider any of us. They were all given an, assi- an assignment and the authority to minister by Jesus. And when he had called the 12 disciples to him, he gave them power. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal the sick of all kinds of diseases. There were three parts to their assignment. But remember this, it was Jesus who called them. The first part, he said, the Bible, the Bible says they, he called them to himself. That's our first call is to Jesus. And he says he gave them responsibility for proclaiming the gospel. So they were, to, they were called to Jesus to preach the gospel and to perform miracles, signs and wonders of healing and deliverance, not to bring attention to themselves, but through the miracles that men and women would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and through faith in what Christ is able to accomplish through us, that they would get saved. And so the miracle is a sign that points us to Jesus as the true one who came to die for our sins. And so they were given the assignment and the authority to minister by Jesus. They all had expectations of tangible reward for their sacrifice. So they left everything, but they had an expectation. When you got married, you had an expectation. He'll know when my head is hurting, he'll know when I'm hungry, he'll know when my hand needs to be held. And now your hand needs to be held, you're hungry, headache, and all that at the same time. And the boy still didn't get it. Because the last I know, the brother ain't God. So unless you say, Headache, hold my hand, I'm hungry he may not pick it up. We, we kind of slow. But when they decided to follow Jesus, they had expectations, and, but in their minds, the expectations, the reward, what they were going to receive was tangible. It was temporal. It was material. I love Peter in uh, chapter 19, verses 27 through 30. Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all to follow you. Therefore, what shall we have? What's in it for us? Watch this, church. Jesus is no longer physically in the world choosing leaders in the church. But what he has left in the church, go to Titus chapter 1, he left the pastor. He left Titus. He said to Titus in, verses, uh, in verse 5, uh, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. He said, Pastor Titus, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And then when you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, he extends that responsibility beyond the pastor. He says to Timothy, now, here's what should be true of an elder and of a deacon. I'm giving you that information so that you have the theological framework Timothy, but don't think that you're smart enough, you're spiritual enough, that you can make this ultimate decision by yourself. So you need to involve some other people, in including other elders and the congregation. And he goes even beyond the congregation. He says, and people outside of the church, that the testimony of an elder and a deacon are to be above reproach, even in your community and at work. So I said, Titus, you do the choosing, but you better include some others Because this is so serious when we talk about spiritual leadership. We don't want to get this wrong. Because when you're in a position of leadership, you stand to do more harm to the church. Somebody say amen. Now, here's what's important. We see that the Lord selected the twelve. And what, what what we what we what, what what's very clear is that when it, it, he does work through human beings now to make those kinds of selections, and even though Jesus is divine, as I've already said, he chose Judas, a thief, who betrayed him. So sometimes the human leadership ain't gonna get it right either. But here's what you need to be aware of when it involves the selection of who or where you should serve, you need to be assured that you've been appointed by Jesus. When he appoints you, when he chooses you, with that appointment comes divine authority. With the specific thing that he has called, he will give you authority. Authority. He said to Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead, but now I am calling you to finish what he has started. And when, the way I was with Moses, I am going to be with you because I am appointing you. When you are appointed by the Lord, the same authority was on Moses will now be, the mantle will be on you. So you need to be sure that God made the appointment, not the church, not the elders, not the pastor. That's why you got to pray about it. The second thing is you need to have the anointing. The anointing gives you the ability to do the service. The spiritual gift. You can have the title. You can, I can have the biggest parking spot in front of the church. You can take over the entire front part of the church. That don't give me no anointing. That doesn't give me the gift. God gives the gift. You need to also know be aware of the third thing. You need to be... Not only that you were appointed, bringing the authority, anointed, giving you the ability, but you need the assignment from Jesus, which makes you, gives you the availability to serve wherever He says. You don't want to be in any position that the Lord didn't put you in because we're going to talk about this. That if you're operating outside of your anointing, then you can be like Uzzah, touching what's holy, that you don't have the anointing to touch, and you could lose your life. But God is the judge. He puts down one, and he exalts another. Psalm 57, verse 7. That's clarification. Now, in preparation. And here's where the Lord revealed to me that I had failed on my side as a pastor. Whenever the church makes a shift, or even at home as a husband, or you're getting ready to take a new job, God says, my people perish, for lack of knowledge. You have to prepare people. You have to do some instruction. Because we are a church who really tries to operate according to the scriptures. And that means that what, when we make a decision to make a, a, a shift, we have to have the word of God to back it up. Amen. So if you're prepared, you'll be better able to respond. So I'll take responsibility for needing to do a better job of preparation. Now, go back with me to uh, Matthew chapter 20. And we've already, I preached this passage before. Sometimes what you're going through, in fact, let me just say all time. The Bible says, count it all joy when you experience diverse testing, for the testing of your faith is allowed to work patience, to teach you how to wait on God. And it said, but you must give that experience time so that, so that patience will have its perfect word. God is trying to mature us, and so he will allow you in your life experiences to be exposed to something that has nothing to do with anything that's necessarily going on in your life right now. Mm-hmm. The reason you don't understand it is because he's getting you ready for the next trial. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happens in, in Matthew 20, uh, verses, uh, the, the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 16, in preparation for, for transitioning the 12 to another level of discipleship, and it was Jesus who gave it was Jesus who gave the twelve disciples the title apostle. He gave them that title. Now watch this. Before he shifts them to function in that capacity, because he's about to die. This is probably we would say the worst time of your life. You got a diagnosis. Doctor says, in this case, Jesus had left less than seventy-two hours to live. And so he called his most trusted trained, we would say, seminarians. they have been with Jesus for three years. They watched him heal the sick, raise the dead, feed 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread. They saw him open blinded eyes. They saw him deliver a man who had a legion of demons. They watched Jesus moonwalk on water. I mean, they saw Jesus speak to the winds and tell the winds to shut up and the winds had to be still. They watched Jesus. He was actually, they were, they were walking on the road. They saw a funeral procession, and Jesus and his, they were, we would say, that boy, crazy. He stopped the funeral procession, the son from Name. and he, he, he put his hand on the young man who was heading to the graveyard to be buried, and he told the young man to get up, and he got up. Death had to obey. It was Jesus who said to them, I am the resurrection. I'm not will. I am currently the resurrection. I reverse the irreversible. I can do those kinds of things. They saw Jesus perform all of these miraculous acts. And so here they are. He's telling them, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And and so the preparation, he starts with a parable in verses 1 through 16, and we're not going to read all those verses. But the parable is a test to prepare them for leadership. Whatever you're going through right now and whatever relationships you have, the Lord is getting you ready for something that you will need a spiritual response to. And your response will out you, (laughs) will show you what's in your heart. Now watch this. In verse 10 it says, but when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius or denarii. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, the last men have worked only one hour. And you made them equal to us. Ain't been in church as long as me. Made them equal to us who had borne the burden. I was with you. Born the burden, in the heat of the day. But he answered, uh, he answered one of them and said, friend, I am, doing, am I doing anything that's wrong? Did you not agree with me for Daenerys? Take what is yours and go your way. You entered into a contract. You worked with me for a price. You were looking for a temporary reward. We settled that. Yes, you worked for 12 hours. There were were four groups of workers. Some came in early in the morning. There was another group that came in. There was a third group. And then finally, a group came in at 5 o'clock or an hour before uh, uh, the work was to be shut down. And so Christ called them all in. And the first he called in were the last. And the last that came in, he gave them the same amount that he gave the first. And so those who had been there longer said, wait a minute. How are you going to let them only work it out? We, I mean, we broke our backs. We helped to build this. It wouldn't be any of this if it wasn't for you. How can you say, can I do whatever I want to do? See, here's what the the parable that is preparing them for what is going to transpire in verses 20 through 28. It's basically about the sovereignty of God. God can do whatever he wants to do with whomever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. But it's also a, a, a teaching about the sinful condition that is concealed in our hearts that is often not revealed until we don't get what we think we deserve. Those that understand that God doesn't have to use or choose us, again, as I said, we're surprised. Paul says, he chose me. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confine those things are wise. He has chosen the weak things to befuddle those things that are strong. Why, God, why? Why didn't you go down to the university? Why didn't you get the doctors? Why didn't you get those who were prestigious? And I'm not saying that the Lord is ever against that because one of the most brilliant people who ever walked the face of the earth that was a part of the team of Jesus was a man named Paul. But he didn't choose us for that reason because if he did, most of us would have been left out. When you are working for pay, for recognition, for reward. You're going to be competitive. You're going to be uh, trying to impress people. You're going to be doing what you're doing for the wrong reason. The reason you know that it's for the wrong reason is because when you don't get what you think you deserve, you're going to stop doing it. But when you are working for the promise, he said to the last group that came in for the hour, I will give you what is right. He didn't even say how much. All I care about is he promised, he said he would. And if he promised it, his yes is yes and amen, he will do what he said. You will work and serve the Lord out of excellence because you know he he chose you in spite of you. When I think about what the Lord saved me from and and who who I am in him, uh, there's no way I'm supposed to be standing here right now. It was the Lord, he scooped me out of the dirt and he formed me and he shaped me in spite of everything that I, I've done and all that he knows about me. He has chosen me to be here this day. I'm grateful. I'm thankful. I want to please him with all my heart. With all I can't love him enough. I can't serve him enough. He's been so good. If you never pat me on my back, one day he's going to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. Your motivation is different when you're working for the promise and not pay. I say to people, if you're working for promise, that includes doing things for people or me. I am going to let you down. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. (laughs) She could probably write a bestseller on the ways of an imperfect master. But seriously, if you're depending on people, and the, Lord, and the enemy knows that he will set you up. Sometimes he'll give you what you want, even though God never called you to do it, to turn you away from God so that instead of worshiping the person who gave, you're worshiping the thing that was given. The preparation was that the Lord was getting, through, getting ready to tell them about what was about, what was going to transpire in Jerusalem, and they never got it. Sometimes what is true of us is staring us right in the face. There's a a gentleman, a a senior citizen. He was visiting his family. He went to sleep, and some of his uh, mischievous grandchildren, they decided to put some Limburger, Limeburger cheese on his nose. While he was sleeping, they put some over his nose. That's the stinkingest cheese you ever want to smell in the history of mankind. (laughs) So he wakes up. And he said, man, this room smells bad. Oh, God, this room smells bad. And so he walked in. Cause This room stinks, too. Then he went out in the yard. And he said, let me get some fresh air. And he goes, even outside, the problem wasn't outside. It was on him. It was a cheese under his nose until he recognized that the smell was attached to him. The preparation is that the Lord wants to show us that we all got some lime covered lime burger cheese under our nose, that we got sin in our life, that there are things that we hold on to that the Lord is telling us to release, that some things that the Lord will keep from us just to show us ourselves. In the Revelation, in verses 17 and 20 through 23, the Lord says, uh, now Jesus going up to Jerusalem, look to, he looked to the 12 disciples, his closest Apprentices, the ones that he had trained, that all the things that I've already said, aside, uh, and and he took them aside on the road, and he said to them, "Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will be condemned. They will condemn him to death, say death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and, and be crucified, and on the third day he will rise again." I want you to know one of the things that happens when I'm dealing with people that are dying for 14 years, when the doctor is saying, and most often, many times the doctors are not courageous enough to say to a person, you have six months or less to live. You're not going to make it. There's no treatment. What the person hears is, we're going to do the best we can. They didn't hear six months or less. So the disciples are hearing Jesus, going to be betrayed, Going to be uh, put to death, crucified, put in the hands of the Gentiles. They hear on the third day. Uh-oh, payday! Oh, hallelujah, we get ready to get ours. We only put in three years. Now we're getting ready to be really hooked up. And so what Jesus reveals about spiritual le- leadership is this. The, there's a price to pay. Bible says, let not many of you be teachers because for those who are in the front, those in positions of leadership, there's a stricter judgment. You' you're not in the stands anymore. you're on the field. You, you're the guy hiking the ball. That's the worst position on the football team where you, all you, you, your head is down, you got your, and, and the biggest guy the nose tackles some 340 pound ugly dude in front of you. And all you're supposed to do is hike the ball when the, when you when the count is made. You're talking about an unenviable, painful position. And Jesus is saying, when you decide to be in leadership, you 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 might, That's what you become the center. And you're going to, when I say hike, the, that's, you, so, so you, you put yourself in the street, so there's a payment to be made. He said, let me tell you about the price that I'm about to pay for leading you. He said, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be put to death. And the Gentiles are going to mock and scorn me. I'll be beaten and crucified. I'm going to die. But here's the good news. He says, that the promise will follow, he said, on the third day. I want you to know that there's a promise that, that is accompanied to your obedience that requires pain. There's a promise attached. When you go to the Bible, just check this out. He says, but be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He says, it, 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 knowing that your work is not in vain, that you will reap a harvest. There's always a promise attached to our pain. But in order to get the crown, you've got, you got to bear your cross. You've got to be willing. Jesus says there's going, to be, there's going to be a price to pay before the promise. He said, beloved have be set forth unmovable. And then he says, and I like this, he says this, uh, therefore we do not look at, lose heart, even though our outman man is perishing, the pain, the price, yet the inward man is being renewed to, day by day, the promise for this light affliction, which is but for a moment, the pain, The promise is working for us as a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. For we look not at the things which are seen, the pain, but the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. There's there's attached to your call. Pain, but promise. And the, pain, the promise of the Lord, will, it will always come to you as you need it. I will supply all of your needs according to your riches and glory. So leadership, what come, come, comes with it, you're going to suffer. You're going to have pain. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, here's a revelation. Understand, are you prepared? Are you prepared? Here's the problem. The carnal heart is often concealed through religious ritual. Listen is what happens. Let's go back to chapter 20. We're almost done. Uh, beginning in verse 20, we read, And the mother of Zebedee, says, Zebedee. Zebedee, came to Jesus with her two sons. Look at the worship, the re- religious ritual, I should say. Kneeling down and asking something from him. And so what happens, carnality, when you have ulterior motives, when really, your heart's not really right, often we will conceal it behind religious activities. Have you ever noticed that some people only come to church when, when they're going through something? They look at God as like a rabbit's tail, as a good luck. Or they're serving again for what they may earn, what they may give. I've actually had ministers leave churches because they wouldn't, the pastor wouldn't license them. And after they got licensed, and they came back. They didn't join the church that they... They weren't led to where they went. They just went to get a title, and then they came back. Now they got the title, but you're still sitting on the pew collecting dust. Your gifts will make room for you. When God has called you, you have opportunity, but when he didn't call you, you just got a title but no opportunity. And God forget, forbid if you just forcing yourself on people because that's cruel and unusual punishment when you just went and you were never sin. And People are sitting there listening. you know, your foolishness. You don't know Adam from, 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 from the gorilla down the street. Everybody's an expert when it comes to the Bible. No, you're not. You become an expert in the hand of the enemy to, to wreck people's lives. And so she came under the guise of worship. She kneels down. Oh, my God. I, I probably would have been impressed if somebody kneeled down in front of me because that's, a not, that's an expression of honor and, and, and esteem that she's worshiping. But really behind it is the question that we all need to answer. Why are you here today? Well, if I come. I know I'll get the Lord gonna bless me. I know I'm gonna be healthy. I know He's gonna take care of my kids. Ain't nobody gonna. No, maybe the Lord will do us like Job, where well, he lost his children, his money, and his health. And his wife said, "Go on and do the Kevorkian thing. Go on, brother, curse God and die." Mm-hmm. Do you really love the Lord for nothing? What is your motivation for following Him? Andre Kraus said, "Lord, if heaven was never promised me neither, and all of it was say, Lord, it's been worth having you in my life." And so she came with religious ritual. Jesus said, here's what Isaiah said. He said, well, that Isaiah prophesied to you, these people draw near to me with their mouths. But as soon as they're going through something, their hearts are revealed by the stuff that comes out of their mouth and how they act. He said, you hypocrites. He, he, he prophesied that you people will bow and pray and jump and shout and do like the mother of uh, the two boys, that she bowed, and she came asking for something. Here's, a, here's another thing. So the problem is the carnal heart is often concealed through our, our, our spiritual. We look so spiritual. We're just as mad as the person sitting next to us, and she didn't speak again, and I know she thinks she's better than us, and da da, da, da. you are just as angry and praising God, and thank you, Jesus, and I know God is good all the time, covering up a rotten heart. Here's the second thing, pride of, the pride of car, a cardinal heart is often concealed to the people that think they deserve special status. Jesus said to the mother of James and John, do you understand what you're asking for? And then he looked at the boys, and he said, can you suffer what I'm going to suffer? Can you drink from the cup and be baptized? He's talking about his death and his suffering. And they said, yep. Yeah. What that means is they really thought they could. Pride is not only the most hated sin, it's the most dangerous sin because the people who have it the most can't see it in themselves. They didn't see themselves as being prideful. This is the way you cut a deal. This is the way you make you, you, you get networks. This is how you promote what's important to you. And you will say you can do anything. You show your best side. You don't talk about your weaknesses. Yes, we can suffer what you're going to suffer, Jesus. Pride can keep you ignorant and you don't even know that that's the very thing that's keeping your relationships from ever growing, from people ever being able to truly correct. You're not correctable. You can't correct a prideful person. And one of the, one of the evidences when people are, are not leadership material is they can't, if they can't be corrected, they're not prepared to, to lead anybody. And so they say, OK, yeah, we can do it, Jesus. Here's another thing that was important. We're moving right on. Are we still with me? Spiritual leadership, um, or before we get to the application, private desires for power and prestige is sometimes revealed by the angry response towards those who publicly pursue what we want private, secretly. Let me say that again. Stay with me. Private. The private desires for power and prestige is sometimes revealed by our angry response towards those who publicly pursue what we secretly crave. So what happens in verse 25, somewhere around there, when the 10 find out that the two went behind their back, the Bible says they were, they were enraged. How dare they? I can't believe it, that they would be that low. They were not upset that, the, that, that these that James and John had done something wrong. They were upset that they had done something before they got a chance to do it. So sometimes our outrage is more about what's wrong with us than what was wrong about what happened. They didn't realize that they were outing themselves, revealing something that was concealed in their hearts that they didn't see as wrong, but it was carnal. It was not of God. You can't have a blind treasurer. Well, they got Braille. They can, everybody can give, him, give their money in ones. No, they can't. I don't want everybody giving their dollars in ones. So if, if you're blind and you can't see to count the money, that means that's not the ministry for you. But there is a work for you to do. So when I'm pounding my heart, I remember when Jimmy Swagger was talking about Jim Baker, how he had gotten caught up in his sin with his secretary. and He should be out of the ministry. He should shut things down. And the next time you hear about Jimmy Swagger, he's parked in front of some prost- house of prostitution with all four tires slashed. Sometimes what we're pounding our hearts, pounding our chests, the loudest about, is really the reason we hate it the most is because it's most like us. The ten were like, are you serious? I can't believe they put their mother up to this. And really, it was about private desires for power and prestige are sometimes revealed by how we respond to those who sleep with the boss to become your boss, those who you teach to take your job. And then you let them do it, and you were okay with it, and now they're your boss, and you mad because they manipulated a situation that you could have manipulated. Or it it could have even been unjust, but your response to what God allows says more about your heart than it says about what he allowed. I had a friend named Richard Stokes. My best friend, I think I liked him most because he was smaller than me. I was better than him as a baseball player. I could beat him up when I wanted to, and he we used to call him the Hummer. He talked every time he talked, he talked with a hum. My name, Uh." so, so Richard Stokes uh, had he, he was his father was a single parent, and they moved him and Robert, his brother, moved. And then I bumped into a guy that we both knew. I said, you ever see Richard Silver? He said, Yeah. I said, Well, what's going on with him? He said, Man, he's six foot three now. Yeah. And he started describing how big he was and what he's doing. And man, I would I just seethed inside. Cause I always wanted to be six foot three. And I wanna be bigger and I wanted to play professional bass. He said, I think he even got a contract with a professional team. And I said, wait a minute, I was better than him and on and on. And then one day, Years later, I bump into Richard Stokes. He's still just this little scrungy little guy. He hadn't grown any taller. So the guy that was telling me all this knew that it bothered me. (laughs) He was just twisting the knife. The more he said how Richard had grown, and I mean, how, yeah, it just, and that just revealed my heart. I was jealous of Richard because of what God apparently was doing for him that he didn't do for me. I had no idea. The Lord showed me that. I told you how I used to get up and I'd give the lady, I'd had my football uniform on coming from Gratz, working on all muddy and everything. And I would sit and got my helmet, my book bag, and ladies would come, they'd sit down, I'd give them my seat on the bus, and they say, isn't that the nicest young man? His parents just really raised him right. And I'd be secretly saying, yeah, I'm the nicest guy. My parents are not, I, I was just feeling so. And then one day I gave my seat up to a woman. She didn't say thank you. And it seemed like my, my equipment became heavier. <laughs> And the ride was longer. And I could start, I sing like I smelled worse. And then the Lord showed me the only reason I was giving those women a seat was not because I really cared or was a gentleman. I wanted the attention and the prestige of being thought of as a nice guy. God outed me (laughs) because I was doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Let me finish with this. Here's some application. Spiritual leadership will cost you something. It will cost you something. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized. You're going to die. And all of them actually died uh, were martyrs. Following the Lord means that you take up your cross. To be a spiritual leader, it means to die to yourself, to esteem the interests of others above your own. Let me run on. Spiritual authority and power is given by God not man. Because if God, if man could give it to you, listen to what's going on in Virginia with the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the attorney general. And those guys, a week ago they were sitting high, and, and they, they could possibly be the next president, and all of the prestige. And the same people that elected them are now saying they all need to resign. Don't go back 35 years in my closet. Please don't do that. Please don't go searching 35 years about what I did when I was some stupid, immature, undeveloped kid because you're going to find some, some, some stuff. <laughs> but my, my, my point is this. If man gives you your position and you're right, the same people that gave it to you will be saying, one day the son of David and Hosanna, king of next day, they're talking about crucify him, crucify him. You better be sure that the Lord gave you your position because when God gives it to you, no one can take it from you. Spiritual leadership in the church is never a struggle for the top, but a struggle for the bottom. Jesus says the greatest among you should be your servants. I am not impressed When you say to me or to my wife, oh, it's so nice to have pastor and wife that are approachable, that talk to you, that don't. Why would you be surprised about that? It's a disgrace and and it's, it's, it's it's a shame on the church if the pastor and wife are so arrogant and condescending that you don't feel like you can approach them. I am so happy. Why wouldn't we be approachable? We're sinners saved by grace just like the rest of us. So You go to a church and the pastor's pushing you away and they're throwing pebbles on the ground or pebbles or whatever. The only person that we need to be throwing that kind of celebration for, his name is Jesus. And the greatest characteristic that distinguished Jesus that I hope you, are, you recognize that is true about my wife and I is that we're servants. Amen. Here's the final thing. Spiritual authority or spiritual leadership follows the example of Christ. He said, I didn't come to be served. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He said, but I came to serve, to, put, to give my life as a payment, as a ransom. I came to die that you could have life. That's the example that the uh, the spiritual leaders, we're looking for people, God ain't looking for no superstars. He's looking for some foot washers. Are you prepared to wash somebody's feet? Stand with me. One of the most embarrassing experiences I've ever had, I've shared it with you before, but it's appropriate again, I was in a class at a church, and there were about, had to be about 500 people at the Bible study. Pastor was out of town. He had an assistant. And I'm thinking, I don't know why he didn't ask me. Because <laughs> this brother up here, he ain't, he, he's, pretty, he's pretty lightweight. He ain't exegeting the te- text. He's eisegeting it. And for him, he thinks he's, I mean, he acts like he's hot stuff, walking all, and I'm thinking, I'm spiritual, I ain't, I'm humble. And so I decided I'm going to ask a question. Now, I knew the answer to the question. So if you know the answer to the question, and you're just asking it, actually, I was taking control of the class, then you shouldn't ask the question. When I asked the question it completely, the brother was confused, he couldn't get his thoughts right, and there was a just chaos in the room. And then they said, well, do you have, I said, oh, I, I think I could help you. So I gave the answer and standing ovation. And about a week later, I get a call from the assistant pastor in the church. I said, uh-oh, they finally got it. I know I've been coming in from Dallas Seminary. and they I've been here almost a year, and they haven't even acknowledged that. Anymore. So I get in there and the brother say, you know what? You have a pride problem. So I'm saying, Yeah, you, you really think so? I'm saying. I'm smiling, and I'm Zebedee's mom. You know, I'm going through them. I get it, thank you for your. man. I'm furious. I said, you know what it is? They're jealous. And as soon as I can change my membership from this backwards church, I'm out of here. We're going to pack these kids, and we'll go. And then as I'm driving home, the Lord said, if you didn't have a pride problem, why is it bothering you that somebody says you do? I felt like I had been knocked down to the ground. So the Lord said, if you can be knocked down from something, you were in the wrong place in the first place. You ought to be prostrate before me at all times. Amen. So what God did through that minister being honest with me, he outed my pride. He showed me what I couldn't see. I thought I was the most humble guy. Ooh, nobody was nobody humbler than me. i tell you so. but that's the best spiritual rebuke I've ever received that someone showed me what I was refusing to receive, but then the Holy Spirit's job is to out us. He convicts us of of righteousness, and and he convicts us of of sin and, and convinces us of righteousness. So if you're here today, Sometimes the thing that you're pointing at your wife about, I wish you would get it together. If you could just look at yourself from the eyes of the Holy Spirit and allow him to really out what's in your heart, you may find yourself in a place of humility, and now you're available. You can say like Isaiah said, when when the Lord said, Who shall I send? And who will go for us? Isaiah, after he had been in the presence of the Lord and had been humbled, he said, Here am I! Send me. I'll go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you show us.